Romans 11, verses 1 through 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Have I kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal? So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? <laughs> By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace Life. It is so good to be here. Man, I love this church. It's so refreshing every Sunday to come and gather together with everybody and just celebrate and rejoice who God is, what he has done on our behalf, and all these promises that are just so precious, uh, and they're all yes and amen in Jesus. And every Sunday, just pinch myself. Maybe not when the air is not working, but it's working today, so we pinch ourselves, right? And uh, it's good to be here. Keep your Bibles open to chapter 11. I'm going to pray before we jump in here, and I'm going to pray especially. Um, it's, I'm, I'm not very good at this. In fact, I'll just confess it to you. Are any of you kind of an out of sight, out of mind kind of person? You have to resist that. You have to kick and fight against that. I'm one of those people, I hate that about myself, and I ask God to help me. But we have a missionary. It sounds terrible. We have a missionary who is a Grace Life missionary, and she has been serving in Ireland on the ground there with a local church since the very beginning when, when we planted Grace Life Church, or maybe just a couple years after. In 2016, she went over, and we have monthly updates from her. She comes stateside. She used to come every year to reconnect with all her partnering churches. Uh, Pioneers, the mission agency that she's a part of, recommended that she wait two years and then come and stay longer. So, it's been a pretty good while since you've seen her up here, giving her updates, and she's going to be here next year, Lord willing, early in the year after the holidays. But I want to just pause and pray for her. Remember Patty. She is serving in one of the hardest to reach English-speaking nations in the world. Uh, very small contingency of Protestant evangelical Christianity there, and the work is slow, and it's hard, and lots of obstacles and resistance and opposition, uh, but God has been faithful to her, so... Maybe I'm putting this back on your prayer map this week to remember Patty, and, and Lord willing, we'll see her face to face soon. So let's pray. Lord, we pray for our friend and uh, our sister in the Lord, Patty Parks, 
She is on the ground in Ireland. She is serving your cause there. I'm grateful, Lord. She is not some rogue missionary that is uh, just operating independently and autonomously on her own with no connection to the body of Christ. As a part of the body, she is connected to the body, Lord. She is there serving underneath a pastor along with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and her ministry is bearing fruit. And I pray that she would know and, and have a sense uh, just of your felt presence today, of your love, and would know that her church, her sending church back home in Florida misses her, loves her, is, is thrilled for the work that she is doing there. We support her, and we want to be faithful to pray for her. I pray when we reconnect, Lord, it's, uh, she'll see many new faces here, people in whose lives you have started to do a work, or maybe you're finishing a work, and for whatever reason, you've brought them here for the next season of their uh, service to you. And Lord, I pray for our time together in the Word today. Do powerful things, God. We know that there are treasures in your Word. The psalmist says there are wonderful things to behold in your Word. We know they're there, Lord. We need your help seeing them. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. This is a challenging portion of Scripture. May that not become in itself a, a distraction, Lord. That maybe not. Those of us who've studied the Bible and maybe follow different teachings and love systematic theology, may it not trip us up, Lord, to just look for a certain system that we want this chapter to endorse or to combat, but rather just hear from you uh, what your word is for us today, what the takeaway is. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I've mentioned in my prayer, Romans chapter 11. By the way, we're going through the entire book of Romans. If you're a guest, uh, you just feel like you're parachuting in. What in the world have I dropped into today? We've been going through the book of Romans for a couple of years, and we just finished chapter 10, and now we're starting chapter 11. Um, this is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. It really is. But you guys made it through chapter 9. You're still here, so we're doing all right, aren't we? One of the most challenging chapters in the Bible. It's, it's one of the most uh, difficult, and it's also one of the most controversial. It generates a lot of discussion, and it generates a lot of disagreement. But you know what, man? I think that's a distraction, too. What I believe God really wants this chapter and, who, and what the author, the human author, the Apostle Paul, what he hoped to generate in this chapter was worship, was praise. How do I know that? Because of the very last verse. Check out what it says. Can you put up uh, chapter 11, the very last verses there, starting in verse 34, I believe. There we go. This is how he ends. A chapter talking about, and by the way, this is why it's so controversial to people. This chapter talks about what is God's plan for the Jewish nation? What is God doing with Israel? What's going to happen to Israel? Because we're seeing some things that if we're paying attention to the Bible, uh, it bothers us, it disturbs us, and it goes all the way back to the time the New Testament was written. By and large, the, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, right? And so it seems like is God finished with them? Is he done? Is he, has Jesus... Has God left the building when it comes to Israel? And so this whole chapter deals with what is God's plan for Israel? What's his future plans? What can we expect to see? And so Paul deals with all that. And some of that's hard. It's hard. It's challenging. But this is what Paul is aiming at. And this is what I'm aiming at going through this chapter. Here it is. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what we're aiming at. We're aiming at worship. Who's with me? Who wants to end this 
Who, who wants to end this chapter now? Was, yeah, I knew what, my system of theology was right. Nobody wants to end there. That's totally opposite of what God wants. So that's what we're after to do, after today. Uh, and there's lots of ways to approach this chapter, and there's a lot to cover. But for today, just to tell you up front what I'm hoping to do, I only want to fly over, not 30,000 feet, maybe 15,000 feet, okay? I want to fly over these first 11 verses, and we're going to touch on some of it more deeply a little bit later on. Uh, but here's my outline for today, just to keep you up to speed. Here it is. The, the title of this message is God and Israel. But here's what I'm really after, because I know most of us, I'm just being honest here, most people in this building that I know of are, are not Jewish, we're Gentiles. And most of us probably don't lay in our bed at night tossing and turning, wondering what is going on with the nation of Israel, what is going on with, with the Jewish people. I have all these Jewish friends and they're rejecting Jesus so I'm hoping to apply this chapter uh, in a way that hits you where you live, okay? So I'm going to try to push three questions towards you that arise out of this text. So this is called God and Israel, but I could really have titled it God and you. God and you, because all of the Bible is applicable. All of it is. Number one, can you face the facts? Can you look around in the world that, that you live in today and see things that are troubling and see things that are bothersome and disturbing and maybe even a little bit unsettling. You're looking at the Bible. This is what God wanted to happen. This is God's will in, in heaven, but it doesn't seem to be God's will on earth. What in the world is going on? You're not, hopefully you're not one of those naive people that stick your head in the sand and cross your fingers and hope for the best. In other words, is your faith able to ask hard questions about itself? Are you scared to scrutinize what your beliefs and your worldview are? Because that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's not sticking his head in the sand. He's looking around and he's saying, yeah, there's, there's hard things going on here. And we got to go to God's word to get answers. That's the first question. Second question, are you seeing God's work? And maybe I could have said that more clearly. Are you seeing God's work in your life right now and around you? Are you seeing pockets of redemption, hopeful things? That leads you to praise God. You can see 10,000 things that are terrible. But we know God is always at work. And if we're looking with the eyes of faith. We will see that. He wants us to see it. He wants us to see fruit. Sometimes from our own ministry. Our own efforts. Are you seeing that? Because Paul teaches us how to do that. And the third thing is. And man this is where I get all up in your kitchen today. Okay. Do people envy your faith? Or is there no discernible difference between the things that you are hoping in and the things that this fallen, broken world is hoping in. Because what Paul is saying here, God's plan for the future is for there to be a massive turning back to the Messiah by the nation of the Jews. And do you know what's going to provoke them to do that? This is radical, and we'll get more into the whole chapter talks about it. It's the faith of the Gentiles, that's you and me, provoking them to jealousy. And it's not even really the sinful kind of jealousy. I know most jealousy is. It's the kind of envy that they, they may reject initially. The message that you believe, the gospel is offensive to them. Jesus is repugnant to them. He's the stumbling block, the cornerstone that they're, that they're crushed by. But at the same time, your lifestyle is attractive to them. Because you actually have hope. You do have hope, don't you? That's the question. That's the getting up in your kitchen, okay? We're supposed to have, there's supposed to be a discernible difference between the things that we are placing our hope and our faith in and the things that this world is. So that's the outline in case you fall asleep. Uh, I just gave you the, the five-minute preach, okay? <laughs> so number one, can you face the facts? 
Can you face the facts? Let me just read the first couple of verses here. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Man, that is a hard question for Paul to ask. Because to ask it, to ask it is, is betraying a reality that, that's so sad. Paul is looking around his day, and he knows that the nation of Israel to which he belongs, you, by the way, I should say this, the Apostle Paul is a Jew. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. And he's a patriot of his nation. He loves his ethnicity. He loves the fact you can hear him, uh, not sinfully, but boasting in it. Look, I'm from the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Jew. I love that. But he's looking around at his countrymen, his kinsmen, his brothers, his sisters, the religious leaders of Judaism, and he's seeing a wholesale rejection of Jesus. And it troubles him. But he doesn't stick his head in the sand and say, you know what? They're going to come around any, you know, I'm just, just days away from this massive revival right here in the, in the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. He is able to face the facts. And here's a verse that, man, it's, when you read it, it's John 19. Just let this settle on you. Here is Jesus, the King, the Messiah. The deliverer of Israel prophesied thousands of years through multiple prophets and priests and kings. And the day arrives where he is presented before his people as the king of the Jews by Pilate, a pagan who is holding him up in front of the people who says, he said to the Jews, this is John's gospel, chapter 19, Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And what you would expect and hope to happen if you read the Old Testament is that they would embrace him, right? And say, finally, we've waited for him. Finally, our Messiah, our King. We are the people of his pasture. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. We bow the knee to him. We turn from our sin and we trust him. But that's not what they say. What do they say? Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Just wanted to make sure. Did I misunderstand here? Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest, the very recognized leaders of the religion answered we have no king but Caesar so he delivered him over to them to be crucified and John 1 recounts it he came to his own but his own did not what receive him so what's the reality that Paul was facing in his day here comes the the promised prophesied Messiah and the very nation who was strategically uniquely privileged to receive him, rejected him. And not only that, but it seems like the people who were far, furthest from God, they had no written revelation, they were away from God, uh, uh, had no hope, alienated, the Bible says. They're tripping over themselves to come into the kingdom, to get into the church, to hear the gospel. Typically, this is what would happen. You see it in the book of Acts. The messengers, the apostles, they would go into a town, they would go first into the synagogue, because that's what Jesus told them to do. First, go to the the house of the sheep of Israel, and they would preach a message. And there would be maybe a few Jews who would, who would believe the gospel, who would repent and would believe. But most of them would reject that message and kick the apostles out of their synagogue and often out of their city. And then what would the apostles do? They would go to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people would wholeheartedly embrace it. That was the reality. In fact, let me see. I have it in Acts 13. Here we go. This is very typical. This happened in Pisidia, Antioch. 
As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So the Jews are hearing there's an apostle. He has a message. So he came to their synagogue. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But guess what? Here we go. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So that was the reality that Paul was facing. He wasn't afraid to face that reality. He wasn't afraid to face the facts. Because he had the scriptures. It's, it's interesting. In chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. Paul is handling, handling a lot of controversial things. That troubled the Jewish minds. And the congregation at Rome he was writing to. And the answers he gives. Do you know that he quotes 28 Old Testament scriptures? 28 Old Testament scriptures in just three chapters. 9, 10, and 11. And he quotes them from 14 different books. So Paul is trying to come alongside the Jewish believers in the city of Rome, and he's saying, look, these are troubling things, but we can face them together. God's given us help. God is giving us help to face these things. Paul anticipates, and he answers some of the questions the Jews would have, and this would be the primary question they would have. If Jesus was a Jew, and he's the Messiah, and he came to his people, but his people rejected him, and it seems like most of the Jews in that day were rejecting Jesus, here's the question. Has God returned the favor? Has he rejected his people? That's the reality that Paul is facing. And some people think that he's quoting Psalm 94, verse 14, which says this. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. All the Jews would have known that verse well. And Paul is saying, is this still true? Is God still for his people? Here would be another passage the people would know very well. Jeremiah 31, verses, I know there's a lot of scripture today, that's okay. This is, we're people of one book, right? We want to get it right. This is the, the new covenant, and man, the, the Jews love, they love this passage. Check this out. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that, it, so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, that means the sun, the moon, and the stars, that's the fixed order of the planets and the orbits and the galaxies, solar system. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. That's some promise, isn't it? Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So he's recognizing, yes, the Jewish nation, even in the Old Testament, have departed from the covenant. But he says, my love for them is more fixed than the order. And as infinite as outer space is, that's how infinite and, and unexplorable and unsearchable is my love for the Jewish nation. So God forbid that I would ever forsake my people. But what Paul is doing is he's recognizing it certainly doesn't feel that way. 
It looks like God has left the building and he's rejected his people. So here's what I want to do with this point. Paul's going to answer that. But first, I want to tease, these, tease this out a little bit with you. And I want to ask you, your, your hope in Christ, your embracing of biblical truth, and the, the truth claims of Christianity, you're a Christian, you're a believer, you believe the gospel, and I want to ask you a question. Are you able to face hard realities in, in the world and the culture that you're living in today? Are you able to face those realities and, and, and let them be scrutinizing? Because a lot of people say, you know what? Christians just have their head in the sand and they won't, they won't allow hard questions to confront their Christianity. It's like they're denying the reality that, that, that they live in. Things are hard today, aren't they? It's been a hard three years, hasn't it? There's a hurricane headed toward Florida right now. What's going on with that? I thought God was on his throne. He was sovereign. Uh, half the, the islands of Hawaii, well, not half. How many are there? Seven or eight? One of them burned up almost, right? So you got wildfires. You got hurricanes. We got tsunamis. We got violence, right? Mass shootings every year. We hear about more. Disease, death, dying. You turn on the news. You look at all these things. And beyond that, there's the political rancor. Christians seem divided against themselves sometimes. We got another election year coming up. Can't wait for that. Can you? It's going to be fun, isn't it? And we look at that and we say, what in the world is going on? And all the confusion going on. With, I mean, can anybody tell you what a man or a woman is anymore? There's a lot of confusion about that, isn't there? And discussion about gender. And people, are, people ask the question, what is going on, Lord? Are you on your throne or are you not? I think one of the principles for me, at least, as I read this, this passage, what arises is, Are you able to take those questions, or you can just call it your worldview. Everyone in here has a worldview, and I've talked about it so many times. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have a worldview. There's the way the world is supposed to be, there's what happened to it, and then there's how's it going to be put right again, and everyone has a view on that. But many people have one, they don't want it to be tested. And what I'm saying to you is that Christianity can withstand the scrutiny, it can handle all the questions you throw at it. Don't be afraid that somebody's going to ask a hard question and it's going to like topple your faith. It's not. And I love that about Paul. He's looking around and he's not naive and he's not blindly optimistic. He's saying things look pretty grim. Things look pretty hopeless on the outside. I get that. Let's ask, let's ask the Bible hard questions. Let's see what's going on. Jesus was a Jew. There's all these promises in the Old Testament about God never rejecting his people but my perception and my reality seems to not measure up with that. So what's going on? Whenever Paul wrote an epistle to Timothy who was at the church in Ephesus, I'm sure Timothy wrote to Paul and he's like, Paul, help. What is going on here, man? These false teachers are eating me alive. You planted this church and then you installed me as the pastor and you left. What the heck? What's going on? And Paul wrote Timothy, this is what he said. He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, anybody? Persecuted. That's what he told him. And while, he says in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Question for you, are you seeing that reality in the world today? Yes. 
Yes. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus are suffering persecution, right? And evil men and evil women are growing worse and worse, right? So the worldview that I have, the Bible can account for it. That's what I'm telling you. Things look terrible. That's right. The Bible said they would. Things look hopeless. Let me check. Yep, check. Just exactly the way God said it would. My worldview can account for the condition of this world, and I can even predict what's going to happen. How about that? You know, we don't want to be proud, but we do have answers, don't we? We have a lot of I can tell you what's going to happen when at the end of the world, when all those things start crumbling. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. There's going to be a massive turning back to God of the Jewish nation, and then the end's going to come. It's not prideful to say that. It's, it's trust and reliance on the scriptures that God gave us. In other words, don't be afraid to give your faith a test drive in the real world. So here's, here's a current reality too. Anybody know how many Jews live in the United States of America? 7.6 million. 7.6 million. And over 16 million live in the world. And there is a very small minority of them who identify themselves as completed Jews, Messianic Jews who embrace Jesus as their Savior. Very small percentage. So we are still seeing 2,000 years after this was written the same reality that Paul did. There seems to be a hardening of the Jewish nation and a wholesale rejection of Jesus. And we don't ignore that. We don't deny that. We take that and then we go to the Scriptures and we say, this is exactly what God said would happen and here's the reason for it. Here's what's going on. Asking questions like this always leads to good theology. I love the way Paul does that. He asks a really important question. Has God rejected his people? And then down in the, I think it's verse 11, he, he asks another one. Did I, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might, might fall? So he's basically saying, is this falling of the Jews total? Is it everyone? And is it final? Is it, is it going to be the end of the Jewish nation? And in both of those questions he asked, his answer is a resounding no May it never be. No way. No way. And here's the reason why. Now again, we're just floating at 15,000 feet today. If I skip over anything, we're going to come back to it, I promise. So this is point two. Uh, point one was, and man, that felt clumsy. I hope that makes sense to you, what I'm trying to tell you. Don't be afraid to ask hard things about your faith because you're seeing these promises that God gave you in Christ. You are a child of God. Maybe I can say it this way. Maybe you are facing a debilitating physical ailment. And there is tremendous suffering that's going on. And, and, and you say, you know what? I belong to God. He's my father. And I thought that, that God would have healed me by now. I thought that I wouldn't be suffering in this way. I thought this thing would be gone. Surely this, this is a thorn in the flesh. I could serve God so much better if he would take this away. Or maybe there's relational conflict in your life right now. And you hate it. And it keeps you up, it keeps you up at night. Maybe your, your marriage is crumbling. Maybe your relationship with your kids is non-existent. Maybe you feel like there's people in your house uh, that are just roommates. You have no relationship with them. Or maybe you don't have anybody in your house. And you're single. And you're all alone. And you've been that way a long time. And this is not how you envision your life. And you're wondering, God, where are you? This is not who I wanted to be. What is going on? 
God loves it when we talk to him about that. In fact, the entire book of Psalms, do you know what it is mostly? The, whole, the reason that we're driven to the book of Psalms when we're sad and troubled and suffering is because there we find really good company. We find people who are processing their pain in the presence of God. And they're asking the same questions. Where are you, Lord? Are you asleep? Wake up. I feel abandoned. I feel like I'm all in the dark. I'm all alone. You've left me behind. My prayers aren't even going through the ceiling. And you always find 99% of the time in these Psalms, with rare exceptions, there's like a turn. There's a 180. And at the very end, they're erupting in praise. Like Psalm 73, it starts out, my feet were stumbling. I was slipping. I was agonizing. And the very end is, who do I have in heaven but you? And there's no one on earth I desire beside you, Lord. You had my hand and you were leading me all along and I didn't realize it. You know, you get from here to there. How? By processing these things, asking questions, taking your faith for a test drive. Do that. I encourage it. I encourage it. Ask hard questions about your faith. Do it with an open Bible. You're going to find answers. God is not afraid of your objections. God is, I would go as far to say, God is not afraid when you're angry. He knows that you are. He knows you're confused. Talk to him about it. He welcomes that. He knows how angry people pray, doesn't he? He's not shocked or surprised by that. Sure, you can cross a line when you're praying to God and start leveling accusations. But take your faith for a test drive. That's point one. Point two, are you seeing God's work? So Paul asked a hard question, and he, he's a good pastor. He's a good model for us. He's anticipating an objection by his audience. He said at the very end of chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of God? He has foreknown, he has called, he has elected and predestined, and we're secure forever. We're his people. He's our God. Nothing can separate us. And then he anticipates some Jewish people reading this letter and saying, oh, really, that's how that works? God calls for himself a people. He sets them apart. He makes covenant promises, and he never leaves them. Well, what about the Jews? Isn't that what he did with the Jews? But what's going on with them? They rejected God. And so Paul has anticipated this question, what about us? And so Paul's answering that. Man, check this out. This is so powerful. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, let's stop there for a minute. I get really excited about this. The first proof that Paul gives that God is busy and God is working and God is present and he's fulfilling his promises. You know what the first proof he gives is? Himself. <laughs> don't you love that? We don't usually think that way. If somebody were to walk up to you and say, hey, prove to me that God is good and that God's faithful. How would you answer that? If you're just kind of pushed off your feet, you know, in football when you're reeling backwards, it's, it's a surprise. Somebody just walks up and says, hey, how's it going, bro? Prove to me that God is good and that he's alive and that he's faithful. What would your first go-to answer be? It probably wouldn't be, well, he saved me. I was watching a debate the other day between Greg Bonson, who's gone on to be with the Lord. He's an amazing presuppositional apologetic guy. Van Til, a student of Van Til. And Gordon Stein was, was a, uh, a formidable atheist in his day. This is way back in the day. And man, it was like the clash of the titans. And they met and they were debating. And Gordon Stein asked Bonhoeffer, who's just brilliant. He majored in philosophy and religion. He's a Christian and it's just amazing to listen to. And he basically said, is God real? 
Gordon Stein did, and Bonhoeffer said he is. And he says, is he good? He says, he is. He said, prove it. And he said, well, he saved me. He created me. He sent his son into the world to die for my sins. And I got to be honest with you, man. When I was younger and a student, I listened to that debate, and I'm like, man, that's a washout answer. I'm sorry. I thought that at the time. I thought, man, he could have like obliterated him with all these apologetical arguments, transcendental argument, and co- uh, I almost said cosmopolitan argument. Oh, my word. Anyway, teleological, there's all these arguments for the proof of the existence of God and his benevolence, right? But you know what, where Bonhoeffer went? The scud missile. He's like, how, do I, how can I prove to you that God is good because he saved me, he redeemed me, he filled me with hope? And that's exactly what Paul did. Maybe, maybe Greg Bonson got his cue from Paul. Paul. Paul said, is God done with the Jews? Certainly not. How do I know? Because he's not done with me. Has God rejected his people? No. How do you know? He didn't reject me. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I was religious. I was a Pharisee. In fact, if you read through the rest of the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was an idolater. I was a murderer. Do you know the Apostle Paul? He, couldn't, he probably couldn't join a lot of churches today because his rap sheet would be so long. They're like, all right, man, we're having our membership interview. Uh, so you're Saul of Tarsus and you, oh, I'm sorry, now you're Paul, an apostle. Okay. Uh, well, we, we'd love to invite you into our church. Do you have anything significant you'd like to share? He's like, yeah, I killed five or six Christians. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> Paul drugged Christians out of their home when he was Saul. Remember? Muttering curses and breathing threats. He had letters of credential from the chief priest. And yet, God blinded him on the road to Damascus, tossed him to the ground, showed him who he was, saved him, redeemed him. Gave him a new identity, a new mission, a new hope, a new purpose, a new meaning. And so Paul is saying, I can't pass over the greatest proof that I have that God hasn't rejected his people. He hasn't rejected me. And man, that was a surprise because he was a Pharisee. Most of the Pharisees were blinded and there was a judicial hardening. Paul is quoting Isaiah and he quotes David from Psalm 69. And he says, hey, there's a spirit of stupor about them. They're shrouded in darkness. There's to this day a veil of Moses over their eyes when Moses is read in the Jewish synagogue. They're blinded and they're hardened. And it's judicial. They rejected so much truth, God gave them an insensitivity to it. It was poetic justice. He says, you want to reject this and not feel anything about it? Then I'll give you over to a non-feeling. You're, you're like hardened, like your nerves are, are, I forget the word for it medically, but you can't feel anything. There's no feeling. That's what Paul was saying. He says, I'm the most surprising work of God at all. So that's my question to you. Are you able to look around and first start with yourself and see that, you know what? God is still here. He is still at work. And I'm seeing pockets of redemption, salt and light. I'm seeing it in my own heart. I'm seeing it around me. You heard Marianne Padilla's testimony. You can find that in written form on our blog, on our website. Her testimony was, she was at a college and she was close to some Christians, and many of them were praying for unbelievers on the campus. And she was one of the most surprising converts, right, Marianne? She came to faith in Christ, and she said one of the ladies in the group that was praying for unbelievers confessed to her later. She said, yeah, I I saw you, and as I got to know you, I thought God would never save her, and I I didn't pray for you. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Be careful, man. (laughs) Be careful thinking, God is at work, but I know he could never do anything with this person. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, here we are, right? I I was that person. Were you? Paul was. James 
the apostle told Paul when Paul went on his circuitous missionary journey and came back to Jerusalem to report to the leaders, he told him how in all the cities, Gentiles were turning to Christ with, with some Jews. And this is what James said. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So it might be easy to say, you know, God's not saving any Jewish people. But he is. He was saving Jewish people. Some, you read in Acts chapter 6, some priests believed. Do you know there were 12 apostles? How many of them were Jewish? That's a Bible trivia quiz. The answer is all. All 12 apostles were Jews. So did God reject his people? No. And you know what? <laughs> I'm, listen, listen, I get it. For, for those of you that are secretly going to judge the slide I'm about to put up, I know we got to be careful whenever a celebrity comes to Jesus, right? It's kind of like standby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it gets really weird. But there are some people even today who at least profess to identify with Jesus of Nazareth. And we just, we only get pockets of this because they're the well-known Jews that we know about, that we see. And sometimes, again, they get really weird because here's what happens. This is another sermon for another day. A celebrity comes to Jesus, and what do the churches do? Oh, a brand new convert who's famous. Come and testify. <laughs> here's the microphone. Share with all the people what's going on. And they're like, God spoke to me in a tornado. And you're like, well, give me the microphone. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> God's at work, and he could speak to you in a tornado, I guess, if he wanted to. He did Job. Anyway, another sermon for another day. God is at work around you. So here's my challenge to you. Are you, see, are you hopeful this morning? Are you seeing pockets of, Brent, you reminded us this the other night when our men met. Um, I forget the exact context. We were talking about discipleship. What really is discipleship? We're coming to that in, in Romans chapter 12, and I'm really excited. One of the things that discipleship should include is a celebration, Brent reminded us. Victories. You're seeing God at work so often. Discipleship is, oh man, this person is stumbling and they're slipping and they're doubting and they're not believing here and this part of their life needs work. But man, we got to look through that sometimes to see, but here's progress. Here's fruit. Man, God's at work. This is a miracle. This person is still believing. They're fighting the good fight of faith and sometimes that's messy and it's dark. And it's bloody, right? But God's at work, man. We see fruit. If we open our eyes and ask God to, to help us see victories around us, God will show us that. Man, I don't I need to see that. Don't I need to see that all the time? Matt and I were talking about this the other day. Man, it's so easy. And church planning, man, it's hard. I know we're technically, we're not a little sapling anymore. We're an established autonomous church plant. But so often it feels like, man, the enemy just puts crosshairs on grace life. I feel that sometimes. And you sense resistment, res <clears throat> resistance and opposition and attack and two steps forward and one step back. But, man, I, Matt helps me. You know, we, we say things that help each other believe, right? Say, man, look at this. Maybe you forgot about this. Look at this. Look what God's doing over here. Would you look at this? <laughs> it's everywhere. And may God open our eyes to see it, to see fruit. Amen. 
Here's one of the things that Paul says in verse 2. God is not, <laughs> we're not going to make it through these 11 verses. That's okay. You knew we wouldn't. Craig, you knew it. You just didn't want to make fun of me. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Do you guys remember the story of Elijah with the J? He was combating King Ahab and Jezebel. They hated him. They were after him. They tried to kill him. He was confronting them with their worship of Baal, calling them out publicly, privately. They were chasing him all around. And finally, he had a big showdown. You remember? It was Yahweh versus Baal, and Yahweh won. Man, it was a decisive victory, and 450 prophets of Baal were slaughtered on the spot. And then Elijah heard that Jezebel had promised to kill him, and he's running for his life. And God finds him, and he's ran way out in the wilderness of Palestine. He's on a mountaintop, and God finds him, and he says, what are you doing here? And here's what Elijah says. Now listen, you never knew you could so identify with a, with a prophet that was from another time, another country, and spoke another language and another culture. But listen to this. Here's what Elijah said. Lord, everyone has rejected you. And I feel oppressed, and I feel afflicted, and I feel targeted. They're, try they're after me. They hate me. They're trying to kill me. And I'm the last one. They've torn down your altars. You ever feel like that in the nation you live in? They've torn down all your altars. I'm running for my life. Nobody's believing Christianity. We're a dwindling people, and I'm the last one. Elijah said that. Have you ever felt like that? Lord, I'm the last one. I'm the last faithful. <laughs> that sounds kind of arrogant now that I say it out loud. I've felt like that before. Where are all the faithful pastors? <laughs> oh, boy. And here's, listen to this. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Check out God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Boom. How's that hit you? I'm the last one. No, you're, no, you're, you're sitting number 7,001. I got 7,000 other people. They're not even crying like you out in the wilderness. <laughs> they know they're not alone. And I love the way it's worded here. He doesn't say, yes, I'm so sorry, Elijah. You know, Baal did a number on us, didn't he? And Baal worship, oh, that caught me off guard, man. I, was, I wasn't on my throne that day. And after, after all this false religion swept through Israel, they left us 7,000. That's not what God said. He said, I have reserved I have reserved for myself 7,000 people. I've done it actively, sovereignly, providentially. I'm not the God of leftovers, and I'm not the God of scraps. Sure, there's a remnant, but it's a remnant of grace. It's a remnant that I've foreknown. God has not rejected his people. You're not alone. There is fruitful work of the Lord abounding all around us if we open our eyes to see. We all get the Elijah complex, don't we? Well, here's the last one. Let's hurry. Point three. Do people envy your faith? Look at verse 11. I'm going to jump forward a little bit. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather. So why? Here's the why question. Well, God, this is terrible. Most of the Jewish nation have rejected you, and they're on a path to destruction, to hell. To reject Jesus is to reject eternal life, right? That's what Paul said. Do you remember when I quoted Acts 13? He says, since 
the Jews have considered themselves unworthy of what? Eternal life. Listen, you reject Jesus, you reject eternal life. It's that simple. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then this little phrase here that we'll pick up on next time. So as to make Israel jealous. What's this talking about? He's saying, look, God is is doing a sweeping work of revival amongst the nations. And he certainly is to this day. Many more Jews or, excuse me, many more Gentiles are coming to faith. And not just in America, in other countries. The Sahara and Africa and China, they're predicting by 2015 that the majority of of Christians in the world will be found in China and Africa, not America. It's incredible, isn't it? God's doing a sweeping work. And you ask the question, why? What's he going to do with that? How's that going to end? And he says, so that he can provoke the Jews to jealousy, to envy. How does that work? Well, here's how it works. People see uh, you have a hope that they don't have. You're trusting in something they're not trusting in. It's giving you security. It's giving you stability. It's giving you a reason to keep going. This is what uh, John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, said when he was brought into the presence of a pagan Roman emperor in the 5th century, and he was threatened with banishment because of his Christianity, his teachings on the gospel and Christianity. They threatened death, and they threatened to banish him. And this is what he said. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, the emperor said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away all your treasures, said the ruler. No, you can't. My treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. He responded, no, you can't. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Now listen, I'm quoting that to say this. Is that the kind of courage you have in the face of opposition and intense suffering? I'm not saying that to, uh, to condemn you, but tell me that's not attractive. Tell me that you wouldn't want that kind of courage in the face of opposition right now. Anybody want that? I want it. And listen, even if you're a pagan and you reject all the principles of Christianity, you want that kind of courage. We all want that. And that's by design, right? That's by design. That's to get people to ask questions like 1 Peter. Always be ready to give a defense, an apology, an explanation for the what? The hope that is within you. You're supposed to have hope that the world doesn't have and that makes them curious. No, you can't drag an unbeliever Uh, to the water. But you know what my old pastor used to say? You can salt their oats. You can make them thirsty. You can make them curious and make them hungry. Scratch their head. Say, how can he be? He's got stage four cancer. Why is he happy right now? I mean, everything we had to live for is in this life. And he's just been told he has six more weeks of it. And he's smiling. What gives? I'm curious. I want to know more. That's the kind of envy and jealousy that's going to provoke the Jews, and have a massive sweeping revival at the end of history. Let me put it this way. Are you just as anxious as the world around you? Are you just as helpless and hopeless? Are you just as afraid? Are you just as angry and apprehensive and selfish and lonely and confused and conflicted and sad as everyone else is in the world without God? Man, that's a terrible testimony. 
But I don't think we are, Grace Life. I don't think you are those things. And here's why, because we have Jesus. <laughs> what else do we need? What else do we need? We know whom we have believed. I was reading the other night with my boys, and man, I never want to, whenever I say things like that, I don't want to get it every night. I go in my children's room, and I read the New Testament to them out loud in Greek. <laughs> no, there are times when God gives me opportunity, and I know we're all like that. We wish we were more consistent, don't we, right, with ourselves and with our family, but God gave me a moment with my boys the other night, and, and they were in their top bunks, and I was reading Psalm 56, and I remembered you ever have a favorite verse and then you go to the next one and you kind of forget about that other one? Psalm 56, we are reading it. And the psalmist comes to verse 9 and he says this. This I know that God is for me. I'm not really in... in ah, never mind. No, I'll say it. I'm not the kind of person that would probably get a tattoo for a lot of different reasons. None of which is because I have anything against them. Just my skin, stuff going on with my skin. But if I did, if I did get a tattoo, I think it would be this one right here. Psalm 56, 9. This I know that God is what? That God is, that God is for me. Man, we forget that. And the psalmist reminds us. This I know. How can you have hope when you're living in a hopeless world amongst hopeless people? Because this I know that God is for me. If an Old Testament person can say that, man, how much more can a New Testament person who has Romans 8, Right? We have God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And I want to end with this last illustration. There was a sweeping revival in the last part of, it was around AD 270 to AD 300. They said nearly every Roman city had a majority converts to, to Christianity. And historians study and say what led to that, and this is, what they, this is what they arrived at. There was a plague, a terrible plague. We think COVID was bad when it first hit. There was a Cyprian plague that broke out in Rome in 250 A.D., and it was terrible. Up to 5,000 people a day were dying, and it was super contagious. And when they realized it was super contagious, the superstitious Romans didn't want to be around any of the people. They thought the gods and goddesses were angry and they were being judged judicially. And many of them were fleeing the city. Historians say that they would push their, their loved ones, spouses, children, ad, uh, their mom and their dad, they would push them away out into the streets where they were staggering. Blood would be pouring out. Their intestines would, would it was terrible. It was a terrible plague. They were so deadly, 5,000 a day were dying, including two emperors and many pagan priests. Nobody was spared, and this plague lasted 20 years. It's only been three years of COVID, and we're over it, right? 20 years, man, the Cyprian plague. Well, the Romans fled the city. Nobles, doctors, statesmen, priests, they all fled in hordes, leaving the poor and their own family to suffer and die alone. Now, listen, you can, be, you can imagine how tempting it was for the Christians. Who were, they were blamed for this, by the way. They said, it's all these Christians who are atheists. They believe they were atheists because they didn't believe in polytheism. They said, the gods and goddesses are angry because of the Christians and we're getting judged. So they were persecuting Christians because of it. You can imagine how tempting it was for Christians to look at the, the Romans and say, how's that idolatry working out for you, right? But they didn't do that. They did something really radical. You know what it was? 
they fled into the city. All the Romans were leaving the city and the Christians were going into the city where they fed and cared for and nursed and loved and preached the gospel to all those thousands of Romans who were dying every day. And the Romans started to whisper, they love, they said, they love the poor and the sick and the dying better than we do. And you know what it did? It provoked them to jealousy and envy. That's how that thing panned out. They said, man, what, what gave those Christians such courage? How could they smile in the face of death? And beyond that, in the first century, how could, so, how could those Christians that were burned at the stake, how could they sing hymns when the flames were licking up around their body? How could they do that? And the answer is they have a hope that we don't have, but we certainly want it. We want it. We're curious. The oats have been salted. We're thirsty. We're hungry. That's what Paul is really prophesying is going to happen in the last days. And friends, we may be the very generation of Gentiles whom God is going to use to provoke the Jews to jealousy. So here's the, here's the question I'm asking you as we close. Is your, do you have a faith that would make an unbeliever envious? Do you? Man, I hope you do. I hope there's low-hanging fruit from your life because of Jesus. That you're doing radical things and you're leveraging your life because of the hope that Jesus has instilled in you. And God, that may be the very thing that God uses not only to convert, <laughs> to lead to the conversion of a Jew, but to your neighbor. So that's the 10,000, 15,000 foot view. We'll, we'll go a little bit deeper next time, okay? That's enough for today. Let's pause and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that our faith can, can face hard questions. We can face the facts of brokenness and darkness. We live in a world who is rejecting you and who's at war with itself in conflict and it's agonizing to see, Lord. The political rancor and the hate, the division even in churches. But you've given us your word that can account for all these things and we have the hope that it's not going to be this way forever. There is renewal coming there's restoration coming there's a resurrection day coming where we will be in resurrected bodies inhabiting a restored planet and there will be harmony lord we we have that hope and god i pray that we would be given the eyes of faith to look around starting with our own hearts and see fruit to see the surprising work of god that you are doing you are always doing Show us that fruit. Will you please, God, in the lives of Grace Life people and those from home who are watching, will you encourage them today? Show them some fruit from their life. Show them some fruit, Lord, maybe from their evangelistic prayers and their evangelistic efforts, sharing the good news of the gospel with those around them. Show them that you are at work in surprising places and with surprising people. And I pray, lastly, Lord, that you would make our hope in you attractive, unignorable, we would be an unignorable presence in this city. Lord, I love that prayer of Ray Ortland for his church in Nashville, that we would remain an unignorable presence in the city. People could not deny. We may hate the message that Grace Life has believed, but we cannot deny, man, they are a people who are at peace and who are filled with hope and who love and serve others, even those who disagree with them. I pray that for our church today, Lord. And I lift up again Patty Parks. Renew her, her mind, Lord, and, and fill her with hope too. And I pray you would do a work in our midst. Maybe somebody is here and they don't have this hope that we're talking about. They've never turned to Jesus. They've never turned from their unbelief, Lord. And 
I pray today would be the day that you would open their eyes, that the, the gospel would drop in their hearts. They would see that you came to be the king, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles, God. You, your kingdom is a vast kingdom, and there is an on-ramp for any human being who would humbly acknowledge, I am a sinner, I have disobeyed God, I have not kept your commandments, I have been guilty of pride. In my own good efforts, I have rejected your way, I've turned aside, I pray, Lord, today would be the day that you would remind them of your great love. As Vitaly quoted in Romans 5 earlier in our worship set, God has demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were enemies, he came and died for us. While we were hopeless, while we were still weak, Lord, you did the impossible. May that floor us today. May we have gratitude in our hearts if, as we sing and, and reflect on, on these truths we encounter today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.